Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Feel free to have a seat. You know, one of the one of the biggest challenges in some days of being a pastor is figuring out how do you draw people out of the situation they're in at any given moment and into what the Lord is wanting to share with us, right? Like for today, for instance, you all walked in and we had salsa sitting in front of you. You were likely all thinking immediately of your Super Bowl party or what you're going to do this afternoon and how you'd love to donate to the youth to help them out with their salsa. So if you're interested in doing that, feel free to do that after this. But how do I draw you away from that? How do I connect you? And of course, it's Super Bowl Sunday. So I had all sorts of things to say about the Chiefs and about the Seahawks and how bad Jack's team is and they couldn't even get close to the Super Bowl. Someone has to tease them about those sort of things, right? How, how do we draw ourselves out of that momentary and back into the larger picture of what God is going to do. We all, we all need that kind of help in those moments. And then sometimes God in his providence just does it for you, right? Dang it, I thought it'd be easier second service. You know, in God's grace and in his providence, you know, I got to sit with my grandpa all last night into the early morning hours this morning as he left this world. And what a sweet thing to sit with another believer of Jesus Christ and be able to, to look at scripture with him, talk through it and pray over him and to know that now he knows today in a very real sense what it means to be absent from the body but be present with the Lord. Right? There is this bigger picture that is constantly all around us that oftentimes we are trying to use our day-to-day -day life to forget about, to not want to ask the question about what comes next. What does that mean for me? Right? That's one of the amazing and almost unique things about what Paul is doing at the beginning of Ephesians. Presumably because of his depth of relationship with them, maybe the fact because he spent two plus years with them, he wants to go straight from, from sort of these pleasantries right into the very depths of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. He wants to push past the milk, as he would have said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, and onto the depths of the glory of God that he wants his Ephesian friends to see. You know, and, and, and Paul went there so quickly. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, as we saw last week, he, he was telling us how God gave us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. And he wants to start setting the, the foundation for us our, of our identity as being wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who he is and all he has done for us, how our identity is found in all ways and in all times and in all aspects in Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And it seems maybe for a moment as we get into verse four, as he starts to talk about adoption, that he's going to talk about this temporary moment, our understanding of coming back into relationship with God. And yet he takes us all the way back to the very beginning of time. He expands the picture of what we're talking about and reminds us that God chose us in Christ. He tells us, that God predestined us as sons and daughters through Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul wants us to go back all the way to the beginning that we might see a God full of steadfast love and grace for me and you and for the Ephesians. You know, stopping where we did last week really left us with attention. Uh, it's so often I think we come to this section of scripture and we want to debate and ask, you know, how could God let some in and not others in? When the real question should be, how could God let any in? How could God let sinners like me and you, when you think about yourself and all the sin that you know you have in your life and even the stuff in your head that no one's ever seen and heard about, how could God let any of us in? How could he solve that problem? 
Our natural course in our sin is always away from relationship with God, whether you did it before time or later. And we must ask, how will he bring any of us back? That's where Paul wants to go today. You know, he started with the beauty of our reality of being adopted as beloved sons and daughters. And he took us back to the very beginning to tell us that that was something that God chose to do in love for us in grace and mercy. And he's going to bring us back to the present to explain how God has accomplished that. And he's going to do it with an eye looking forward to next week, to the future, to the future of what that means for us in grace and glory. And let's start by reading our entire section this morning. And then we're going to break it down piece by piece. It says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he starts with just this first phrase, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You know, as we've just seen already at the beginning of Ephesians, we come across this phrase, in him, in whom, in Jesus. And it becomes sort of the the marker of Paul's major points at each section. You know, in sections one, uh, verse one, uh, chapter one, verses three through six, we saw that he said that God chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, which was that main point for that piece. In our section today, it starts again with that phrase, that in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. That's what the main idea is going to be throughout this whole section here. And we're going to see many different things about our redemption. We're going to see the forgiveness of our trespasses, that it's in Christ through his blood and according to the riches of his grace. Now that phrase, forgiveness of our trespasses, is really just Paul trying to make particular what he means by redemption. Redemption means bought with a price or even ransomed with a price. And the idea is not just that he ransomed us out of just anything, but out of our sins and out of the guilt that we have from our sin. How would we ever come in that sin into right relationship with God? And Paul says that he redeemed us from the natural penalty or outworking of our trespasses and sin. I mean, Paul is making a huge claim about adoption here. He is saying that the only way back into right relationship with God as a beloved son or beloved daughter is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. This is an exclusivity claim. There's no other way to get there but Jesus Christ. This relationship is true and decisive in our lives only because of our faith in Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews says, therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who God calls, those who he chooses, come to him through the covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, and are redeemed from our our trespasses, our transgressions of the law. That is our most basic hope of faith is that God would deal with our sins, that we might be in right relationship with him again. That all of our sins that we've been made aware of, in fact, all those sins that even kind of get raised up when we even look at the law, that point out and almost entice us to sin, would be surely dealt with on the cross in the blood of Jesus Christ. And what's even more amazing is that that redemption, that idea of being purchased as a ransom price is not just a one-time occurrence, right? It's not just for your present and your past sins. It looks forward even. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 21. 
It says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud and power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions of sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our redemption, our adoption as sons and daughters of God is 100% true today, and surely he has dealt with every sin that we have had or have today. And yet our our redemption looks forward to a moment when that reality becomes even more real, even more real when we stand face to face with our Lord, our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and walk with him in right relationship in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, we live in this already not yet state today, the fancy word's called eschatological, where, where we, we realize and see redemption, yet we know that it is coming in an even bigger and even more real way in the future as we come back face to face in glory with our Lord. And all of this past, present, and future redemption all hinges on the blood of Jesus Christ. As Aaron was sharing just a couple weeks ago from Psalm 23, those, those sheep that the shepherd protected from, from predators that wanted to come in and kill them, some of them were set aside even for sacrifice. All that work that they might be sacrificed. Life for life, blood for blood, because that's what it costs. And that's what we needed. Jesus became our once and for all sacrificial lamb, Hebrews 10.1. His death was our ransom. Without it, we could not be redeemed. And again, we see that Paul brings us back here in this section to God's grace. Paul sees the redemption that God gave us in Jesus Christ, and he wants us to see that it was because of the grace of God that he did this. It was not compulsion. It was not begrudgingly. It was because God looked on you. God looked on me. God looked on Paul and the Ephesians, and he smiled. He joyfully came to the cross that he might save us. He wanted to draw us back as beloved sons and daughters that we might walk with him daily. Again, we see this week, like we saw last week, that one of the main applications in this section of Ephesians is to grasp onto and enjoy and love the grace of God. To see his steadfast love, to see his amazing desire for mercy and know his gentle ways. We should see again and again as we look at this section of Ephesians, God as he declares his own character to Moses in Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Is that the God you see? when you come to Ephesians 1. I mean, I think, I think Paul knows our tendency. Paul knows our tendency that when we come to these moments where God is unfolding his will and his character before us, things that hurt our mind, cause us to struggle to put all the pieces together in ways that small, finite brains just can't, our tendency can be to be mad at God, to put him on trial, to blame him in our confusion. So Paul is drawing us back to grace again and again. 
reminding us that our God did all of this for us in grace. No matter what we can understand, God has only acted in grace towards us. His choosing to do this for me and you to save us in his gracious ways should only fill us with thankfulness and amazement when we consider what God has done for us. I mean, amazingly, Paul says even more in this section about what this redemption did for us. When Paul's thinking about this grace, Paul says this, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I mean, that word which here is Paul just repeating again that that phrase, this amazing grace. This amazing grace that God gave us, he lavished it on us. He didn't just give you a little piece, just a little medium one. He poured out grace, filling up, overflowing abundantly all over that you might have it and experience it joyfully in Jesus Christ. It's this kind of grace that that we can barely um, possibly imagine nor fully understand that even an eternity of walking this out with our Lord and Savior will only begin to scratch the surface of what it looks like. And while grace is truly that amazing and almost incomprehensible, Paul does give us one important aspect of what it means that God lavished grace on us. He tells us that he lavished grace in all wisdom and insight. My guess is when you think about grace, you either think about the person who gives it to you, God or Jesus, or you think about a feeling, this idea of like thankfulness, joy for it. But how often do you think about wisdom and insight when you think of grace? My guess is that most of us forget to think about grace as knowledge or wisdom or insight. Or as one scholar has said, it is remarkable that Christians so readily identify the lordship of Christ in matters like worship, salvation, and ethics, but not in thinking. Yet that's the picture that Paul is wanting to give us here. God lavished grace on us. Grace that, that, that was bought in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And this grace looks like a particular kind of insight and wisdom. A knowledge that God gave to me and you in Jesus Christ. I would dare say that there's a divide in Christianity. A side that wants to put almost all the weight on our affections and our feelings. And another side that wants to relish and put all the weight on our knowledge and understanding. But those two are never meant to be separated. In fact, in reality, the two go hand in hand. As John Calvin said, faith is a warm embrace of Christ and consists in pious affection. Right? It's warm. It's this thing that we feel and understand and an affectionate embrace of Christ, but it's also a pious affection, one ordered with good, right, understanding ways of who God is. As often as the case, Paul is wanting us to focus on this one side this time, this idea of what it means to have grace of knowledge, wisdom, and insight. But he doesn't want us to forget that these are together. How often do you think about God's grace, meaning God gave you insight and wisdom? That you can know something now. That you have the ability to go to God's word, to study, to see him better, to pray to him, and through the Holy Spirit, commune with him, to know him more. Knowing our knowledge is inextricably tied to God's love and grace for us. Now look at Colossians 2.3, what Paul says here. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, 
and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not only has God given us a, a grace that includes wisdom and insight in Jesus Christ, but he contains all wisdom and insight. It is all in him, through him, and to him, because he is the Lord God of all creation. Jesus, the God-man, is the totality of all wisdom and knowledge. That is amazing. But when you want to think about knowledge, it's even more mind-blowing when you look at Galatians 4. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Paul, when he's talking to the Galatians about their faith, he's talking about this moment where they came to know God, and he can't help himself but say, or to be known by God. To draw them back again to the beauty of what God has done in knowing them before time. And think about this. Paul describes this relationship of adoption, of loving embrace from our God through our Lord Jesus Christ as being known. God has known you and not rejected you. Instead, he's loved you at great cost to himself through the very death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That is something we'll continue to unpack for the rest of our lives. But friends, don't run away from the grace that is wisdom and insight. God gave you the ability to study, to know. Tack your Bible with fervor. Seek to encourage one another with what God has shown you, the ways you know him that others might see and know him similarly. Our faith is more than just knowledge but it is not less than it. So we should be, if we're, if we're tracking with Paul, we should continue to want more throughout this discussion at every step. We should be saying, if God lavished grace upon us, that we could have wisdom and insight. Paul, what is this wisdom then? What is the insight that God wanted to pour out so abundantly upon us? And he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. God lavished grace upon us in our redemption through Jesus Christ that we might have wisdom and insight and particularly wisdom and insight in God making known to us the mystery of his purposes or of his will according to his purpose. Now we, we keep coming to this word mystery in Paul and mystery for Paul doesn't mean something that we need to go seek but rather it was something that God never fully revealed previously that now has been made clear in particular in Jesus Christ. He's saying, what you see clearly in Jesus Christ is God's will. And the word will here means purposes. It's plural. So we're talking about that God has purposes. He has goals that he wants us to see. But if we replace that, it creates a funny interpretation here. Making known to us the mystery of his purposes according to his purpose. And what's happened here is they were trying to give us the sense. And that last word, purpose, actually should be translated good pleasure. right? So it would make it this way. It would say, making known to us the mystery of his purposes according to his good pleasure. That's not a huge change, but what it does miss, if you don't do that, is that we're talking about God's disposition again. Right? God wanted to share with us the mystery of his purposes in his good pleasure. It was his pleasure to do so. You should begin to feel, in Ephesians 1, like you're not going to be able to escape the joyful pleasures of God and all that he has done. Paul's not going to let you escape it, so neither am I. 
It was God's pleasure, not just his pleasure, his good pleasure that he would save you. The third time that Paul has said this already in Ephesians, and we aren't even to verse 10. Do you see God revealing his character, revealing his purposes, his plans, his goals, as his joyful sharing of himself with you for your joy? To riff on another pastor's favorite phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most joyful in him because he is joyful in sharing himself with us. God wants you and I to find joy in knowing the plans that he has had, the ways that he has ordained all of time because he joyfully gave it to us. He wants us to, release, to be released to find joy. You know, Paul reveals God's plan for us step by step through Ephesians 1, and he will not let us miss this joy no matter how the plan strikes us at every step. For me and you, if we look past our doubt and questions, this statement from Paul, all of them, our amazing joy. We have a God who for before time chose to save us, literally enjoined himself forever to humanity as the God-man, died our death on the cross, bore our sins through his blood, and raised again in power that we might be adopted. And he did that to lavish grace on us in his good pleasure to know all of his purposes. There is no child when they hear about the adoption that they faced, the the time that their parents spent praying for them, the money they saved up and raised from friends and family, the governmental hurdles that they jumped through, receive and hear any any of that plan, any of that purposefulness as anything other than the joyful love of their parent pursuing them. That is what God has said to us. Why would we find this aspect of our God to be full of any less joy, especially when we know it came at a much higher cost than we could have ever imagined, the very death of his son. So as Paul unveils this process step by step, we now see that wisdom and insight were specifically given to us in knowing the mystery of his will, given in his good pleasure. So again, we should say, okay, but I want more. Paul, what are these purposes? What is the the goals that God has that he wants me to see in his good pleasure? And we might think we came to it in this next statement. It says, which he set forth in him, Christ. We don't say, yes, God showed us his purpose in Christ. We say, yes, he did do that. But he's not actually going to say that till verse 10. Here, this which connects back up to good pleasure. What he's trying to tell us here is that we see God's good pleasure as he said it in Christ Jesus. I mean, imagine for a minute a banquet. You, you go to, to a friend's house who who's, wants to throw a, a meal for you. And this host has spent days, days cooking, preparing Uh, keeping the meat ready and and cooking it perfectly in a smoker for hours. Uh, They've set every piece in front just right for every single person who's going to attend, a place setting for each and each, every individual person. And as as you walk in and you see this laid out before you, you can see the good pleasure of your host the host who wants you to know how how welcome you are and invited in. That's the imagery here behind this idea of setting forth Christ. God wanted you to not just know that he was doing all this in his good pleasure, but he wanted you to see it. So he embodied himself as pleasure for me and you. Not begrudgingly, not not frustratedly, but joyfully and lovingly becoming the God-man that we might see him. 
That is the image of Christ set forth, God's good pleasure fully seen in Jesus. You know, like a banquet, God has prepared our entire existence, this entire universe, that he might display what his good pleasure looks like in the very God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ is not only the means by which God accomplished our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins, he's the very embodiment of God's grace and joyful purpose in us. Friends, to to behold God's good pleasure is to behold Christ. To behold Christ is to behold God's good pleasure. Do you gaze on him intently in your prayers and ponderings, in your pursuit of him through scripture, that you might see the very beauty of God's good pleasure? Again, God is smiling on you in Jesus Christ. As we just saw in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Again, we come back to God's joy in his plan. And instead of this last phrase, this last section of verse 9, it's verse 10 that tells us the content of God's will, what, what his purposes were for, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. We're told that God revealed wisdom and insight to us in lavish grace, that we might see the, the mystery of his will, his purposes, which he says here, is his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and on earth. He brought us this plan in Christ, and the plan is all about Christ. Jesus is truly God's definition of grace for us as both the means by which he brought that grace to us and the goal of the plan, the goal of that grace. And the idea here of this plan is is a household plan. And just like I have household rules and plans and ways that I want to see things happen at my house, God has a plan for all that he rules over. A plan for my house, for your house, for this entire universe. And it's a plan for the fullness, fullness meaning the final outcome, the final goal of all times. And that word is plural again here, times, not time. So just like purposes, God has purposes for all times that they might all point us to the same thing, to Jesus Christ. That is how God is making all things right and bringing people back under his loving reign and rule into relationship with him again as a loving father. I mean, this this picture of being united is such a big concept and it's like one of the longest Greek words you'll ever see because they're trying to pack so much meaning into one idea. It has within it both the idea that we are being connected in Jesus Christ, but we're also being connected to him. That's part of what united means. And then it has this prefix that means that it's being done again. So we are again being brought to Jesus Christ and placed in Jesus Christ, connected that he might be all things to us. Friends, do you remember that this has been the whole story, right? Have you ever noticed that that scripture starts in a garden with the presence of God? And then at the very end, we have a garden city where we're back in the presence of God. And in the middle, God is taking his people to a land described as a garden, flowing with milk and honey, abundant growth. They worship in a tabernacle and a temple adorned with the imagery of a garden, a lampstand that figures a tree. Again and again, we are being brought from the beginning of a garden, through a garden, back to a garden to walk in relationship with our God. And he is doing it again in Jesus Christ. He is bringing us back to right relationship with Jesus. Or as John would say, because all things are in him, to him, and through him. 
That is what he has done. And it isn't just about us. God is bringing all things, things in heaven and on earth, back to their purposes as they belong with, connected to, and united under Jesus Christ. Just as all things were made through him and to him, as Paul says, they will all be brought back to their original glory and purpose under him. God has chosen me and you, adopted as beloved sons and daughters, that his grace might be seen in the whole world and that he might receive praise. That's what verses 3 through 6 were telling us. And in verses 7 through 10, we see that God was able to do this through redemption because of his ransoming of us and in particularly dealing with our sins that we might be able to walk with him again. Without that wonderful exchange at the cross, we would have no reason to believe that our adoption could be possible. And in this redemption, God gave us lavished grace with wisdom and insight. And he didn't just want to save us, but he wanted us to see and know how this was a part of a much larger plan, a plan he's always had to bring all things in all times and all ways under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image, the picture of God's lavish grace given to us that we might see and know this God better and better. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. I come back to this passage again and again in my walk with the Lord and realize how much Jesus Christ is trying to embody and show us this very character that we see at the very beginning in Exodus with Moses, that he is this God. This is who he is and what he does for us. Friends, we should marvel that God would want to share with us his broader purposes. In fact, I know so much of our our day-to-day walk sometimes is not to think about that broader purpose, Uh, to not think and ask the questions again and again, what comes next? What does it look like? If you are here this morning and you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, that is a very real question. And there will be a moment where you have to ask it, whether you want to ask it today or not. And I want you to see and know that the Lord God is holding out to you faith in Jesus Christ with a smile, inviting you to come to faith in him, to know that that is your only way to walk rightly with him, both today and assuredly in the future. If you're here this morning and you already have that hope, grab onto it again as your joy. Grab onto the joy of the assurance of your salvation based not only on the faith that God has given you, but on the reality that he has known you, that he has loved you, and that he has given you the Holy Spirit, that that flame might even have begun to flicker in your heart. And because it's based on him, it will stand surely to the end. Would you pray with me? Lord God, when we think about the big moments, the big picture of life, what else can we do but come to the gospel? Lord God, we have no hope outside of this. As Paul would say, we were to be the most pitied if this isn't true. 
Lord God, would we rest assured in the love and grace and steadfast mercy that you have given us in all ways through Jesus Christ. Would we run back to him as our very source of joy? Lord God, thank you for all that you've done for us in him. Would we find that our knowledge of you and your lavish grace given to us on the cross helps us understand better your purposes, your your will, and seeing it as good pleasure to us. Your sweet, abounding, steadfast love that we might glimpse and see and know you more in the very God-man, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.